This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Bill Cosby awaits his sentence. He could get up to 30 years in prison for drugging and then sexually assaulting a woman in 2004. When he was found guilty last week, it was called the first conviction of the Me Too movement. Well, a Colorado woman played a pivotal role in the trial. Heidi Thomas lives in Castle Rock and had her own encounter with Cosby more than 30 years ago. She's one of close to 60 women to accuse him. And Heidi, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I understand that since the verdict, a great many people have asked for your reaction. But your response is to insist that how you feel isn't important. Why, why not? I think there are people listening to this that don't know me, and that's not important how I responded. What's re- what's important is what this means in the grand scale of things, what this means for other people who have been victimized already and our daughters and our sons, and hopefully it's it's setting a template for a new way of dealing with these crimes. Hopefully. What changes do you hope to see then, palpably? Clearly, the first one is look at how long it took for all these people to be believed, including people. And this is with somebody who's famous. But there are so many victims out there who are assaulted by family members. And of course, their family doesn't want to acknowledge it. Or they're assaulted by somebody they know. Oftentimes, assaults are happening by somebody the victim knows. And no one will either believe them or they can't go forward because somebody somewhere is going to lose a job. Someone's going to get accused. Someone is going to, you know, it, it's going to be bad for the, the, the reputation. And so someone will somehow lose a job and therefore they, they can't go public. You never thought you'd be able to tell your story in a court of law. Is that no, right? absolutely not. That was so long ago, first of all, past the statute of limitations. Mm-hmm. And again, the, the metaphor I keep using is David and Goliath. Who is really going to take on that kind of an assault? And And now part of what's been miraculous, in my opinion, is the timing of the Me Too movement. It did make a difference. Anybody who thinks otherwise is is absolutely... Uh, in the fog. It made a difference in what exactly? Because jurors uh, or a juror who's mm-hmm. been interviewed has said Me Too didn't really enter the jury room, the deliberations. But I'm are, sure. are you saying it, it entered the broader picture? Absolutely. Uh-huh. It, I'm sure they didn't talk about it in the jury room. It was not part of the evidence. And their job was to stick to the evidence. So God love them, they did. But the entire societal awareness has been awakened. Awareness and awakened? Yes. Mm -hmm. In the last several months, that this is not something that happens just to other people. I've been saying for months that, that this Cosby thing was the tip of the iceberg. And now the Me Too movement has proven that correct. I want to give just a little background on your encounter with Cosby. In 1984, you were an aspiring actress who had the opportunity to meet with him in Reno, Nevada. You say you were taken to a private home and given some wine and later drugged and then assaulted. That was his pattern. Uh, right. You would later say that you were drowsy for four days afterwards. Dozens of women told similar stories accusing Cosby 
Uh, but you never filed charges against him. And as you said, the statute of limitations in your case ran out. Why didn't you file charges back then? Is it because he was in show business, a Goliath? No, it was because I didn't tell anybody. <laughs> Nobody huh. knew, including my parents. I thought this is actually kind of a cool story. I don't remember most of the four days I was in Reno. I don't remember coming home. I don't remember the flight. I don't remember being picked up at the airport. I don't remember anything. But what I do remember was that my my mom has a broadcasting background, and she was very cautious about this whole thing. But part of Cosby's M.O. is to ingratiate himself with family members. This is, we've now learned, part of his pattern. So he had called our house and he had spoken with both of my parents and made sure that everybody was very comfortable with this entire situation. And I knew that my mom and dad would be devastated, brokenhearted, if they understood what really happened. Now, here's the other part of that answer, really. At the time, classic victim mentality, which I have since learned, is that I wasn't sure, but what I had done something wrong. I had somehow sent the wrong message. I had Mm. somehow. So what am I going to tell my parents? Well, you know, I I think I, I think we um, had some intimate moments and I'm not quite sure how that happened, but I mean, wow. Part of the reason you didn't tell your parents is you thought they would feel so responsible perhaps for what had happened to you. Absolutely. So if my folks don't know, there goes any idea of pressing charges. Not so going to happen. Maybe folks wonder, well, if statutes of limitations had passed, how is it that you were able to testify in this more recent trial? And the answer is you were called as a prior bad act witness to Correct. testify. I think the first of five women. Correct. I was the first. And and obviously that means my story had to be told. So when the women started adding up back in the fall of 2014 and Hannibal Burris made a comment in his stand-up comedy routine, which we all find rather ironic, that that five decades of women had been making noise and probably getting, uh, I don't know, paid off, but certainly hushed and not believed and called gold diggers and much worse. And then it takes a young black comedian male to say one comment and all of a sudden it's maybe believable. He made a reference to Cosby being a rapist. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. In his stand-up. And that just caught everybody off guard. But all of a sudden now, all of these comments were a little bit credible. And the women started coming forward. And, of course, they were called horrific things. And I finally decided I just want them to know there's somebody out here who believes them, who knows they're telling the truth. But I still didn't want to go in public with my poor parents who are now in their 80s. Hmm. And this was just two years, three years ago. How have your parents reacted? Well, to, it to turns your, your, out yeah. my mom suspected for the last 30 years. Apparently, I called her from Reno and I have no recollection of in, that phone call. In that fog, in that haze. Sometime in that haze. And she remembered it and she made a comment to my husband, I will never forget that phone call. And my husband pulled the car over and said, wait a minute, what phone call? And from there on, it, it it opened up. So I went public in January of 2015, and everything kind of progressed from there. When this second case came 
together. There had been a mistrial. There had been a mistrial last year. And when the second case came together, the district attorney, as they say out there, for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, determined that he really wanted to see if he could show a pattern here. And so he was given parameters by the judge, Hmm. and I fit the parameters. He came out to Colorado with a couple of detectives, took my statement, talked to my husband, got him as a corroborating witness if we needed it. And then he determined, based on his parameters, who was going to testify. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Heidi Thomas of Castle Rock, who indeed did testify in the most recent trial of Bill Cosby. He awaits sentencing, could face up to 30 years in prison, which might mean dying in prison for him. How was it to testify and to have him just feed away? I I honestly didn't even think about it. I was wow. there to do a job. My biggest focus was, oh, please, give me clarity, give me articulation, help me make sure that my story, which by this time I knew fit a pattern. I didn't know what the pattern was, but that was why I was there. I wanted to make sure the jury heard the truth. And I probably was 10 or 15 minutes into my testimony before it occurred to me, I didn't even know if he was in the room. And so then I looked over at the defense side and, oh, (laughs) there he was. (laughs) Hello. Hello. But then I went back to, this is my job. I got to do the best job I can to make sure this man is is held accountable. How was it to testify about those four days that were so foggy for you? Well, that obviously was a kind of a funky thing. It's It's almost a perfect crime he's committed. He's a brilliant huh. man. He is so intelligent. And part of what all of the Cosby women have been concerned about is that this might become a template. Because if you can't remember what happened, how are you going to testify in court? So the only thing I really had to go on was I had kept pictures, airline tickets. You had kept those things. I had. because That required some foresight. No, it required a a family who does scrapbooks. (laughs) I see. A family (laughs) that doesn't throw anything away. No. Yeah, right. You know, Bill Cosby was one of the world's favorite performers, America's dad to millions of people. I mean, it was impossible not to see him somewhere on the sitcom, commercials, talk shows. Yeah. Uh, His stardom was part of the reason you agreed to meet with him. You were, again, an aspiring actress. What was it like for you after the encounter to have had such a very different sense of him than the rest of the world? Obviously disappointing, and I think that's a word used by many of us. And again, if we if we bring this into into what's happening now, mm-hmm. that is a very common feeling with all these public people who are now being accused of these horrible crimes. They're the two faced side of it. And the fact that you did feel like you knew this person and you trusted this person, they came into your home on radio or TV or or by their work, and and you felt like, wow, aren't they wonderful? Aren't they successful? And then you find out there's this horrible side. It's, it's disappointing and disillusioning. Are you grateful that the world sees a fuller Bill Cosby now? I'm grateful that there's some reality check that's happened. 
I'm grateful. I'm very grateful for all of the people who have found their voice because the more that do, the more that empowers others to do so. Take me back to the to the stand. How, how was it to be interacting with the defense? Was that painful? No, not a bit. You know, I, <laughs> my husband and I are kind of fans of of legal television shows, and and I had been warned this is not TV. But in some cases, in some aspects, there were similarities, and I was all prepared for the defense attorney to schmooze a little bit and make me feel all comfortable and then kind of ramp it up and get a little more accusatory. And that's exactly what happened. So I, I think I was prepared for it. Hmm. And uh, quite honestly, yikes, should I say this? I'm going to say this. I was surprised. I did not feel that the defense attorney was very well prepared. I was surprised. I I was ready to go to battle on some things that she never even mentioned. Brought up. Yeah. It was, she had lots of big pauses and she'd look at me and she'd look at her notes and I just, yeah, she didn't look very organized to me. So I was pleasantly surprised. And obviously that, well, that was empowering too. Do you have any sense that Bill Cosby is remorseful? No. I'll say, I, I just read an article in which he compared himself to Nelson Mandela headed, oh, yeah. to, headed to Robben Island. And his publicists have compared him to... Um, a very a, a tragic case of a of a young black man who was lynched. Absolutely, it, I, he was not guilty, but he was lynched for flirting with a white woman back in the fifties. And his publicists have complained and compared this to that. No, he has no remorse. That I know from the district attorney. He does not understand that what he has done is wrong, which is why. Although I am not a mental health expert in any, I'm a music teacher for heaven's sakes, but, but something is broken. He doesn't get it. He really doesn't. You could still file a civil suit, couldn't you? In other I don't words, know. I know that there are. It's not something you've considered? No, no. To me, and, and I'm not disparaging any of the women who have cases against him, but to me, that plays right into the whole, oh, they're out for money. Interesting. So, no, I will never press any kind of charges. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for allowing me to speak. My goodness, yes. Heidi Thomas of Castle Rock was the first woman to testify about her experience with Bill Cosby in the comedian's recent trial for aggravated indecent assault. Cosby was found guilty last week, faces 30 years in prison. When we come back, it was supposed to solve RTD's problems, but a partnership with a private firm seems to be creating problems. Instead, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. RTD's commuter rail lines, so like the one to the airport, they're touted as being really high-tech, but they've relied on some low-tech to operate legally. Flaggers have been stationed at road crossings for two years now, making sure the gates work properly. It has led to a rocky relationship between RTD and the company that operates the lines, and now the credit rating agency Moody's 
is sending up its own flags about this relationship. CPR's Nathaniel Miner is following this story. Hi, hey, Nathaniel. Uh, remind us what this relationship is here between these two organizations. It kind of dates back to the late 2000s. So the Fast Tracks program, which voters had approved to build out transit, couple of years before uh, was not going very well. Mm. It was supposed to result in more than 100 miles of new rail lines. But then the Great Recession hit. So sales tax revenue went down and construction costs went up. Things were way, way, way behind schedule. So RTD was trying to figure out how they were going to get things back into gear. Back on track. Mm. Uh, what did they do? RTD decided to pursue something called a public-private partnership, or P3. Normally, when a transit agency wants to build something new, they use their own money to do it, or they take out loans. But both options were not going to work here. But not just because sales tax revenues were down, right? Right. So the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, or TABOR, makes it more difficult for public agencies like RTD to borrow money. So in 2010, RTD got a private company, Denver Transit Partners, to help pay the upfront costs for three new rail lines. We've got the A line to the airport, the B line to Westminster, and the G line to Arvada, which still isn't open. Right. In any case, add in a big federal grant, and RTD was back in business. People were jazzed about this. Pretty fantastic. Today, folks at Union Station getting a glimpse of new transportation that's coming to Denver. That's right. It's RTD's commuter rail. What does the private company get out of a deal like this? They got a contract to build the lines and operate them for Uh three decades. RTD pays them a set amount every month. So basically, it means RTD gets these new train. Uh, it means that RTD gets these new train lines, and they pay for them over a long period of time. And we know that things haven't gone quite according to plan in this relationship. That's right. We've all heard about the problems with trains losing power and getting stuck. This happened a couple of weeks ago, even. Uh, but it was issues with crossing gates that kept regulators from giving the final sign off. Denver Transit Partners, under contract to design and run the system, was ordered by the PUC to have flaggers like this at each intersection. To to alert RTD of any possible problems. And this has been dragging on for years now. Yeah, for years, since 2016. It's gotten to a point where one of the Wall Street agencies that keeps an eye on debt, Moody's, is warning Denver Transit Partners investors. Warning them about what? Uh, There's a big deadline coming up for Denver Transit Partners at the end of July. Uh, Unless everything on these lines is ship-shaped by then, RTD will have the ability to terminate the contract and just walk away. And walk away? Would RTD do that? That's the million-dollar question here. Uh, But their spokesman, Scott Reed, sent me a statement saying they had no plans to do this whatsoever. Even the guy at Moody's who wrote the report thinks they'll work it out. This is Earl Heffentrayer, an analyst at Moody's. There is the public perception that no one wants to be the first USP3 that completely fails. And that also goes into our view that this project ultimately will make it to revenue service commencement. So what he's saying here is he thinks the two sides will work things out and that this big experiment will continue moving ahead. Public-private partnerships are becoming more and more common across the country, and we've seen a few big ones here in Colorado. The Highway 36 uh, to Boulder rebuild a couple of years ago. We've got the big I-70 project in North Denver coming up later this year. Those are all P3s. And so if... Uh, this didn't work out, this public-private partnership. It could look bad for RTD. Right, exactly. And also, Heffentreyer pointed out that it would be technically difficult for RTD to just come in and take over these rail lines. 
they've never operated one before, a heavy rail line. The rest of their system is light rail, which is completely different. That's the contrast mm-hmm. here. And what about the private contractor, Denver Transit Partners? Any word from them? So I got a statement from a spokesperson saying they didn't want to speculate on what might happen. She also noted that state regulators just gave them some marching orders late last week that should help them to get a little bit closer to this final sign-off. That final sign-off, mm-hmm. which is so pivotal. What's your read on this? You've been following it for a while now. Yeah. Uh, it's worth noting that everyone, all these parties, are working together toward the same goal. They're not exactly fighting. Uh, so to me, that suggests they're going to avoid the nuclear option and just get it done. Um, but, I mean, at this point, two years later, the fact that we're having the conversation really speaks to how bogged down this whole process has become. Well, thanks for filling us in. Yeah, you're welcome. With CPR digital reporter Nathaniel Miner. Colorado is braced for an active wildfire season. Already in El Paso County, a fire destroyed nearly two dozen homes and burned 43,000 acres. Ahead of the summer heat, CPR environment reporter Grace Hood tells us how homeowners are preparing. Lester Carplus has lived in his four-bedroom log cabin home outside Nederland for a decade. As he cuts down a tree near his home, he says late spring can be an anxious season in the rural foothills. The moisture is below normal, and uh, that means that the vegetation is probably going to be drier. CarPlus went from renting to owning his property several years ago. That's when he contacted a Boulder County program aimed at reducing fire risk. If you don't take an active role in making the forest fire safe for your house, you're going to lose it. Boulder County's Wildfire Partners goes beyond most local programs. Three years ago, a professional came to his property with detailed recommendations. CarPlus spent hours reviewing fire hazards on his land, and he got 30 pages of work to do. This year, he worries whether his neighbors have done their part. Even in Netherlands, a lot of folks that just don't want their trees chopped down. And unfortunately, it's going to be a disaster when the next fire happens. Complacency among homeowners is a concern for wildfire managers. It's been five years since Colorado saw the Black Forest Fire, which destroyed more than 500 homes near Colorado Springs. At a recent wildfire briefing, Governor John Hickenlooper advised caution for homeowners. He spoke to the media inside an airplane hangar. Making sure that individual homeowners, property owners of all kinds, that they're aware, that they're paying attention, and that they are exercising the, the common sense fire precautions necessary, that's, that's got to be priority number one. A 2016 report by CoreLogic identified more than 228,000 homes with extreme to moderate wildfire risk. The concern is echoed by Colorado's insurance industry. The state has already had the third fastest growth rate for home insurance across the country. Carol Walker with the Rocky Mountain Insurance Information Association says homeowners need to be ready. They need to be preparing not just their property, but their finances for what could be a severe wildfire season. Almost all insurance carriers now require homeowners who live in the rural foothills to do some sort of wildfire mitigation on their land to get a policy. But Walker says the demands of insurance companies and local fire protection districts vary. I think what's key is we're really trying to work in the last few years to marry that up to what those fire officials are asking at the same time. This is already happening in Boulder County, home to wildfire partners. It's not enough to do one thing. 
or have a checklist. Program manager Jim Webster says a detailed personalized plan is key to successful fire prevention. The county has more than $2.5 million in grant money to pay for specialists to develop the work plans and help Boulder County residents defray the costs. Another carrot, a wildfire partner's certificate of completion boosts the likelihood that a home gets insured. In many areas, it's difficult for homeowners to obtain insurance. It's becoming increasingly expensive. So before a homeowner acts to reduce their risk, they want insurance if they meet published standards that they'll be able to obtain insurance. Lester Carplus reaped the rewards for his hard work two years ago. The Cold Springs fire surrounded his home on all four sides. It burned half a dozen homes nearby, but not his. Well, I can guarantee that if we had not done the work, we would not have a house today. Today, Carplus's property looks like a moonscape. His goal is to clear remaining vegetation and to farm quinoa on the land. Actually turns out to be pretty good, and it's great for quinoa. It's a different look from what Carplus imagined for his property. But he says as the climate continues to warm and wildfires become more frequent, a landscape without trees and brush means there's a lot less to worry about. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. If Earth has earthquakes, does Mars have Mars quakes? A new mission to the Red Planet seeks to answer that question and others. The InSight lander was built in Colorado and is scheduled to launch Saturday. Here to tell us more is astronomer Doug Duncan, director emeritus of the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. He joins us regularly to talk about space science. Hi again, Doug. Hello, Ryan. We'll get to Mars quakes in a moment, I promise. But big picture, what is the broader mission of this trip to Mars? We're trying to learn more about how the planet Mars has changed over the course of its life and and, uh, by reference to Mars, learn more about Earth. You see, planets have all formed at the same time, at the beginning of our solar system, four and a half billion years ago. But the evolution of each planet differs. One of the big things that changes that is its size. Hmm. You know, as planets age, they, they cool off. And the same way that a cake cools off more slowly than a cupcake, um, the Earth is bigger than Mars. And so uh, the Earth is still hot inside. Some of that is heat from the beginning. Some of it's generated from radioactivity down inside. But the Earth is, of course, hot inside. It's got a molten core. We have volcanoes. It's an active planet. Mars is a pretty dead planet nowadays. But in the early days, it, it was very different. It had water. It was hotter. So what happened to make a planet change that much? And might it happen to our own, I suppose, is a huge question. So InSight will put a seismometer, uh, a quake detector on Mars. But it's really searching for something underneath, far underneath the surface. What's it looking for? We're looking to understand the core of Mars, which just like the Earth is, is mostly metal, and then the mantle outside that, which is rock. And uh, we want to know the physical uh, properties of what's deep down inside. Like I said, the Earth's core is, is molten. Mars is smoother, smaller. Excuse me. It's cooled off more. And it's actually debated uh, among planetary scientists mm. about has Mars's core solidified? Just how hot is it down there? Right. Is there 
any kind of molten substance on Mars. Does, does that mean that lava would have flowed on Mars at some point? Not only did it flow a lot at some point, but this is going to surprise some people. But in talking to planetary scientists around Colorado, I found there's a debate about whether that's happening right now. Oh, Okay. Yeah, Mars has the largest volcano in the solar system called Olympus Mons. This is, I have to say, I'm so excited to have learned this. It, you I, know, I didn't know this before. It, Olympus it, Mons. Yeah, three times as high as Mount Everest. Yeah. And uh, pictures from orbit, not right on Olympus Mons, but in different places, have some really young lava, lava flows, only a couple of million years old. And when it comes to volcanoes, you know, that means it still might be active. Maybe, just maybe. Well, how could a quake detector on the surface reveal what's at the core of Mars? The same way we study the Earth, okay? Seismologists depend on the fact that there's two kinds of waves or vibrations that go through the Earth when there's an earthquake. Mm. Um, And the best way to describe this I've ever heard is to think of a slinky. And I hope all of our listeners have seen a slinky. And suppose you wanted to make waves in a slinky. There's actually two ways to do it. So we'll pretend that Ryan's on the other side of the room. He's got one end of the slinky, and I'm on the, on the other side. I got the other end. If I push it real quickly toward you, a pulse or a wave goes up and down that slinky. Right. But I can also shake it up and down. And then a sideways wave, an S-shaped wave, goes along the slinky. And these are the kinds of quakes, essentially. Those are are the kind of waves inside the Earth when there's Mm. an earthquake. And that's what seismometers measure. But the two different kinds of waves are different when they hit a liquid. The pressure wave, the the, the pushing wave, can go through liquids and the side-to-side waves can't. Ah, so measuring these might tell us the substance is beneath. Right. And that's how we figured out the Earth's core is liquid, and that's what we want to do with Mars. Huh. There is also a thermometer on board InSight, which will drill down 16 feet to detect any heat. And I suppose that's telling us something about what's, what, what lies beneath. So the escape of heat from a planet has unbelievably dramatic consequences. Okay? A planet cools by radiating the inside heat out through the surface. So the faster the heat can get out, the quicker the planet cools. And that controls so many things about a planet's future. So we talked about the Earth. It's bigger than Mars, so the heat has farther to go, essentially. Mm -hmm. So the Earth is definitely warm inside, and we've got volcanoes all over the place. But in the case of Mars, we're not sure. Now, when the core of a planet cools, the big, a big thing that changes is the magnetic field. The Earth has a magnetic field. You know, you have a compass. You can point it at the magnetic field. But more important than that, it protects us. Our magnetic field protects us from the bombardment of particles from the solar wind. Huh. Mars has cooled enough that it doesn't have a protective magnetic shield like the Earth. And so the solar wind is stripping away Mars's atmosphere. That's why most of it is gone. There's a mission called MAVEN that right. was designed and run here in Colorado. And it's been watching. It's in orbit around Mars and watching the atmosphere little by little disappear. So cooling down changes your magnetic field, protects or doesn't protect your atmosphere. And let's not forget Olympus Mons, a volcano the size of Italy, could still be active (laughs) on Mars. Isn't that wild? It's mind-blowing. And you know what I, I always appreciate when you come on, astronomer Doug Duncan, director emeritus of Boulder's Fisk Planetarium, is how much we can glean about places that are so far away 
from measurements like heat, for instance, or seismology? What would cause an earthquake on Mars, by the way? Well, uh, certainly uh, when Mars is bombarded by meteorites, uh, the ground shakes. I would, I would um, think so. Seismometers nowadays are very, very sensitive and they can pick up the vibrations from an impact. Mars doesn't have plate tectonics, okay? So there's not a big range of earthquakes like along the coast of mm. California where I grew up. By the way, since the plates, the crust of Mars is not moving, when a volcano tries to erupt, when the magma comes up, like in Hawaii, we have a lot of different islands because the hot stuff came up, the mm. crust moved, got another island, moved, got another island on Mars, it all comes up in the same place. That's why that volcano is so gigantic. Exactly. Okay. Uh, well, another space, uh, spacecraft with uh, Colorado ties just launched two weeks ago. The TESS mission is looking for planets outside our solar system. Yes. And this is the golden age of finding planets around other stars. You know, when I was in, in university, everyone was Curious, and they still are, of course, what's out there around other stars. You know, the whole science fiction industry is based on maybe there's intelligent life out there. And now we know there's lots of planets, and TESS is one of the missions to do that. TESS has batteries and computers on board made in Colorado. How, how will it find these? These are called exoplanets, right? right? Very simple way. When a planet goes in front of a star, it blocks a little bit of the light. Now, I bet a lot of our listeners may remember that in 2012, Venus went in front of the sun. And, you know, we all went out with dark filters and watched it. But if you were billions of miles away and you were just looking at the brightness of the sun, Venus would have blocked a fraction of a percent. And that would have told you a little something about Venus. Well, either that it has a planet or maybe a sunspot, okay? The great thing with planets is they'll come back again and again. So if I see a dip and another dip in six months and another dip in 12 months, that's the smoking gun that it's really a planet. And TESS is looking for that dynamic. It is, and it's focusing particularly on the closest stars to the sun, so that's kind of nice because if you want to learn more about a planet other than its size, which made a dip in the light, it would be nice if the star and the planet were closer. I mean, it's still incredibly tough to study a planet that's, that's many billions of miles away. But at least if it's around the closest stars, there's a chance to study some more. Hasn't Kepler... The space telescope been looking for exoplanets and, and found thousands of them. It has, but Kepler is different in that it it stared, excuse me, at one little part of the sky mm. day after day after day, and so it found a lot of planets. But most of those stars that have the planets are very far away, and they're all in just one little part of the sky. If if you were particularly trying to find the nearest stars, you'd go over here and over here and over here, and you would just point all over the sky at the brighter stars. And that's what's different about TESS. Yeah, NASA says TESS will search for planets around more than 200,000 stars. Yes. And what, what kind of planets could it find? Well, it has the sensitivity to find not only big planets like Jupiter, which would, of course, block more light from their stars, but smaller planets like the Earth. And that's what we'd really like to find. And we'd love to find an Earth-type planet with an atmosphere that passes in front of the star. 
with the idea that maybe, just maybe, there's life or the potential for it. Yes. And when you stare at the atmosphere of a star, you're looking to see what gases are there. Because billions of years ago on the Earth, we had the gases from volcanoes. We had sulfur dioxide, carbon dioxide, all this nasty stuff. And then life came along and made oxygen. And that's the only source for all the oxygen in our atmosphere. So if you could detect the atmosphere of a nearby planet around another star and it had oxygen in it, oh boy, that would get interesting. Well, thanks for being with us. You, you blow my mind regularly when you're on, Doug. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Astronomer Doug Duncan is Director Emeritus at the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. NASA's test satellite was sent into space earlier this month, and launch of the Mars-bound InSight lander is scheduled for Saturday. Singer and guitarist Erin Roberts performs as Poor Lolo, She's from Fort Collins and started Poor Lolo in 2002. Her songs blend folk, pop, and indie rock. the change in speed on that song. Well, Roberts has a new EP. It features contributions from some notable Denver musicians. Poor Lolo performs Friday night at Lost Lake in Denver. And Aaron Roberts, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Your debut performance as Poor Lolo was in 2002, and it came together by accident? How did that happen? Sort of by accident, a malicious accident. A malicious um, well, accident. Not, not too malicious. I was playing in a band called A Dog Paloma at the time, and I was playing trumpet in the band. And the band leader at the time canceled the show last minute. And I had been playing a, a handful of songs that I had written with some friends of mine. I was living in Boulder. And I said, oh, my gosh, uh, Joe, do not tell them that you're canceling the show. This is our big opportunity for a live performance. So we just showed up, pretended we were a dog, Paloma. The sound <laughs> guy at the time, Kurt Ottaway, he said to us at one point, I, you know, I, I really thought dog Paloma had a male singer. I'm like, oh, no, no. You know, we like to switch it up a little bit. So that was our, our first show. I see. So the malicious was was you. You you were vaguely malicious. Vaguely. Uh-huh. That's I, how a lot of people describe me. Vaguely. <laughs> vaguely. Poor Lolo. Vaguely <laughs> malicious. Uh, you, that made you become a singer on stage. Had you sung before in oh, in a club? Or? Oh, gosh, no. N- never. And singing has never come natural to me. I was terrified, absolutely terrified. But I think making it through that first set, being so terrified and then conquering the fear, that got its hook in me um, for live performance. And these were, as you said, songs that you'd been working on just on the side. Yep, they were all original songs. I can't stop saying poor Lolo. I just, I love that word, poor Lolo. Yeah. Where, where did that come from? And did you have it when you graced the stage? We did. And at the time, it was just 
we needed a name quickly, and it was the first thing that came out. We're poor Lolo. Um, and it means ch- uh, boyfriend in Chilean slang. Oh. We spelled it a little bit differently. We spelled it a little more phonetically. Um, so you announced yourself that night as poor Lolo? Yes. But weren't you supposed to be a dog Paloma? You know, I'm not sure if we announced ourselves at all in our heads. Okay. That's a long time ago, Ryan. Well, I'm just trying to get your facts straight here on this nefarious musical story. This could be, all of this could be true. All of this could be false. (laughs) Things moved pretty quickly for you after that first show. You did. Soon you were making records and playing at the South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. I mean, lots of bands go years before getting the chance to do those things. How is it to achieve that so early? It was challenging, actually. I mean, we never really intended to form a band, start playing shows, and be in the industry at all. It's not something I necessarily didn't want to do. It just wasn't the plan at all. Hmm. We just were a group of friends that were getting together to play songs. So um, Bella Union was this label in Europe that had asked us out to play their showcase at South by Southwest. And we really had only recorded this three-song EP had very little performance um, background at that time. So I really think we jumped. It was a great experience. But Um, you went from zero to 60. We went from zero to 60. um, Just totally not ready to be in that spot at all at the time. Did the stage fright ever come back or had you gotten rid of that for good? Oh, I think I had stage fright for a good 10 years. I think I've just more, more, more recently gotten rid of stage fright. How did how do you think you've done that? Is that just about reps under your belt? I think it's repetition. I mm-hmm. think it's realizing uh, that live. Perf- I think it's realizing that the audience is there with. If they're there to see you, they're there with you. They really don't care about the little mistakes, and they actually sometimes embrace the um, humanism in the in the mistakes. The audience is more generous than perhaps you. Of would course, have otherwise yeah. thought. Okay, well, let's hear some of the music from those earlier years. Oh, this, no. This is, <laughs> this is Scratch My Back off the album Storm and Season. Why, why do you say, oh, no, it's lovely? It was half past ten. We were wondering where all the lights had gone and where you been. And the call that came was a dime well Poor Lolo on Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Aaron Roberts is the singer and guitarist behind Poor Lolo. The band has a new EP. And you've described your own music as sometimes being twangy. Yes. I, I hear that in this song, like you said, pulled a Y. Pulled a Y. Yeah, I think the twang in Poor Lolo comes from not being a trained singer. Okay. And honestly, just trying to <laughs> sing different vowels in tune. And for some reason, in order to do that, it's easier to get a little bit of twang in some of the words. I don't think this is a necessarily twangy song yeah, as I agree. a song structure or a chord structure, but um, yeah, I think 
as my singing has evolved, um, that's a technique I've used to try to sing a little bit more in tune. So after that initial success, you moved to Western Colorado, spent some time in Crested Butte, one of my favorite places in this state, Gunnison as well. How did that affect the trajectory of Port Lolo? Well, it certainly slowed down um, progression within the industry. I mean, you have to really be a part of whatever local community you're in, actively performing, doing the radio shows, Mm. um, putting out EPs. Um, So... I think it slowed our progression down in the industry. However, I was able to collaborate with some of the most creative individuals I've ever worked with during my time there. So I think it was a great time to step back, really get into the love of music, work on songwriting, work on different kinds of harmonies and different kinds of songs. It was a wonderful experience being there. And you say that you're often inspired by nature. Crested Butte is a good place to be inspired by. Uh, the new Poor Lolo record is Awards. Why don't we hear from that now? This is I Don't Want to Lose. I don't want to fight. The record features musicians who play with Esme Patterson and the Still Tide, and also Pat Meese, who plays with Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats. And I understand that was sort of a happy accident as well. There are a lot of happy accidents in the making of Poor Lolo. Right. I would say that's uh, just from having the right kind of friends. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been participating in the Denver music scene since 2002. It's a really long time. And um, friends over over the years just kind of travel in packs and stick around. So when we were in the studio with James Barone, who was recording, he's uh, Pat is his roommate. He came back from a Nathaniel Rateliff tour and jumped in and put keys on and synth on a lot of the songs and made the songs a lot better. And it was be because he was a roommate. He was someone. a roommate. He was there it's, in the right place. It's the Denver music scene, for and was you. kind enough to agree to play as well. Thank you, Pat. Your lyrics deal with some personal topics. I want to talk about the title track of the EP, Awards. Why don't we hear that first? Sure. Those lyrics, send an old smoke signal, send a St. Bernard stuck in my head. Just briefly, what's this about? This song is about trying to maintain a sense of self. Um, 
as I progressed through adulthood with increasing responsibilities, finding a sense of self um, as a parent, as a creative, as a parent creative, and kind of holding on and, and keeping precious that, that inside flame. I think a lot of parents struggle with how to maintain their creativity while raising kids. It's incredibly hard to find the time and the energy to maintain that sense of self and that sense of creativity. What I've found is, for, for me, is that it just manifests itself in completely unexpected times and places. Huh. Any time can be creative time, unexpected time. Aaron, thanks for being with us. Ryan, thank you so much for having me. Aaron Roberts is the singer-songwriter behind the band Poor Lolo. The new EP is called Awards. Poor Lolo performs Friday night at Lost Lake in Denver. And in the interest of full disclosure, I should say that Roberts is married to a videographer here at CPR. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Smoke signal sender